Hello and warm welcomes. You're listening to Great Philosopher, a podcast dedicated to exploring art, aesthetics, and the human condition. I'm your host, Artem Solis, and in this series, we'll be hearing stories from the residents of Pilgrim Place, a retirement community of humanitarians, peacemakers, and leaders of social change nestled in Claremont, California. In this episode, Mark C. Johnson will be discussing his experience in Lebanon during the early years of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Stay with us as Mark discusses his journey and shares his wisdom on the human experience. Without further ado, here is Mark C. Johnson. So could you describe a little little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a uh, fairly recent retiree after sort of three careers. I finally settled into retirement and a new resident at uh, Pilgrim Place in uh, Claremont, California. Uh, I grew up in uh, the Northeast in Rochester, New York, and uh, had a long career with the YMCA in a capacity that allowed me to travel much of the world and uh, to see it through um, the lenses of a part of that YMCA history that most members of the YMCA are not familiar with, which is to say it's work around uh, world peace and social justice. Uh, married for 47 years, three children, five grandchildren, and uh, learning to be a little more relaxed about life than was true for a long time. So humanitarian work is something that takes a lot of time, patience, and efforts. So I'm curious how you got into dedicating practically your life into the YMCA. Yeah, um, so I I said I grew up in Rochester, New York, and I grew up um, during the mid-60s, which was a time of a lot of racial unrest. Um, Maybe not so different than the challenges of our own time, but uh, there were what we called race riots. There were periods where inner city areas, you know, um, experienced violent unrest. And at that point in my life, I was involved as a youth in the local church with some young recent seminary graduates who were doing youth work and who saw what was going on as a teachable moment, as we uh, sometimes say. So I was introduced to the notion that there were injustices um, that we could address um, by educating ourselves, by listening, and by engaging fairly early in life. Um, And just as I was really leaving for college, I went off to the College of Worcester in Ohio and uh, met the returning students who had studied at the American University of Beirut during their junior year and was persuaded fairly quickly that that is something I would like to try. Um, I went off to the Middle East, uh, to the American University of Beirut for my junior year and uh, fell in love in a number of ways with uh, the culture and that part of the world, uh, but also was introduced to the conflict there, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, especially in the way it was being played out in Lebanon, where there was a large population of Palestinian refugees uh, from 1947. 48. So this was 20 years after the creation of the State of Israel and that evacuation. Uh, but at the American University of Beirut, where I was studying, there was also a significant number 
of what we would call the elite of the Palestinian community, Palestinians who were still living in the West Bank uh, or Israel who had come to study at the American University as well. Um, I finished my junior year and came back to the States to finish college and came back uh, with a deepened commitment to be a conscientious objector. And of course, the context for that in the United States was the war in Vietnam, not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Worcester was typical of religious colleges in that there was a lot of support for students who were seeking alternatives to entering the military and the war in Vietnam. It was a period of national protest. And so uh, I had met people in Lebanon who said, well, if you come back here, we can arrange for you to do your alternative service in Lebanon. So nine months later, I turned around and went back to Lebanon. It took a year, maybe two years, to persuade my draft board in Rochester that the work I wanted to do in Lebanon would qualify for uh, the work of a conscientious objector. But uh, eventually I persuaded them by being conscientious, and I uh, ended up teaching at an Armenian college in Beirut for four years uh, as my alternative service. Did a number of other things as well. I met my wife there, and we... Um, staffed a campus ministry uh, that served the American University of Beirut, Beirut College for Women, Agassian College, Neary School of Theology. Now, if you listen to that litany, you know that there was a uh, sort of a strong uh, colonial type presence in Lebanon at that point. But like those young youth pastors at uh, in uh, Rochester when I was growing up, they called themselves young Turks. They were no longer engaged in evangelizing for Christianity. Uh, they were really at the cutting edge of multi-faith, multicultural learning. And so Lebanon is a, is a, a fairly unique country in that it had a, um, a political structure that recognized that there was a wide variety of religious influences uh, especially Sunni, Shiite, Christian. I got particularly involved, in addition to the teaching, with expatriate Americans and Europeans who were sensitive to the plight of the Palestinians and got involved in uh, political action around Palestinians, which are, to go back to your original question, at their heart, humanitarian uh, issues. I mean, you... I remember that one of my earliest experiences was visiting Shatila, uh, which was one of the Palestinian refugee camps. This was just after the June War, 1967, and there had been bombings in the camps. And so there were bomb craters. And, you know, part of my political education was being taken by Palestinian uh, students into these refugee camps and recognizing that the ordinance that uh, caused these bomb craters was American-made and uh, had been get, sold to Israel. And so you, you were in the presence or in an environment where one could expect um, some hostility, and yet there was a great deal of hospitality instead. And so just recognizing the, uh, the capacity for hospitality it was powerful. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's not something that is resolved, not something that's, in terms of humanitarian efforts, improved. Um, 
saddening to see the conflict still going on today and a lot of the stories and the voices from who are Palestinian get lost and misrepresented and kind of portrayed in a negative light. So I'm curious as to like what your thoughts are um, more so on being involved in, in the beginning of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, I'd, I'd also like to put that in the context of the ongoing current situation in the, in the Middle East because, um, you know, it's only worse uh, than it was in the 60s, and that was a challenge. I mean, when the State of Israel was founded in 1947, we are learning that the Zionist project program was very conscious of, partly because of the experience of Jews in Europe, to the challenges of creating a politically diverse environment in democratic and that the, the program from early on was insensitive to the rights of Palestinians as uh, political and, and human beings. You know, thinking back, uh, I was in Lebanon when Robert Kennedy was assassinated, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So all of these things that help shape our understanding of what the movement was about in terms of achieving a just society then manifested themselves in the Middle East, uh, particularly in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, the Palestinians are reputedly, and I think it's true, amongst the best educated of the Arab peoples. Um, so there's a long and um, deep history of political theology, political philosophy, uh, and politics. And uh, so there was lots to learn in the sense of just the, the theory. And then uh, it was also a resistance movement. And so there was early on an appreciation that as a pacifist, as a conscientious objector, my path wasn't the only path that people would take to achieving their their rights. And certainly the Zionist project justified the creation of the State of Israel and the pushing of Palestinians out of you know, 400, 500 villages into exile in Jordan and Syria and, and Lebanon was a, a part of not a passive or, or a peaceful process. It was a, a violent process. Lives were lost, property was destroyed, and so on. I realized that I'm uh, blessed and privileged in many ways, and certainly having had a chance to visit Syria and visit Turkey and visit Iraq and visit Kuwait and so on during those years and since, that I have a very different uh, experiential sense of the Arab people, of Muslims, of uh, the Arab world in the Middle East, Iran, and places. And I have to work really hard to understand how blind people can be to our common commonness, uh, what we have in common, what we share as, as human beings. And so uh, there were, again, people who had already spent decades uh, you know, the American University was over a hundred years old, spent decades probably as true believers, really trying to proselytize uh, democratic processes and laws, uh, rule of law and so on in that uh, part of the world, then processed through the experience of a multicultural period. You know, people don't realize that uh, or don't know that in the 1860s, when America was suffering through the Civil War, there was a civil war in Lebanon, and there was a civil war in China. 
that there was this period in the 1860s when these uh, differences had, uh, especially around slavery and, and human rights, as, as it represents, bubbled to the surface in conflicts. And then they resolved themselves for decades. And then we left Lebanon in 1974. And Lebanon again went into a period of civil war where those conflicts, which were really at their root, Palestinian-Lebanese conflicts, uh, though they were interpreted by the media through lots of other hypotheses that uh, just didn't serve themselves. So could you define a little bit about the Palestinian-Lebanese conflict? Yeah, so the Lebanon, as it has today in terms of the Syrian unrest, uh, received, um, mostly by not refusing, very significant numbers of Palestinians who were driven out of Palestine. Um, quite a few went to Syria, to Egypt, and to Jordan as well, but the largest camps um, were in Lebanon. And Arafat and other leaders of various factions maintained their headquarters and their training practices in Palestinian camps on Lebanese uh, soil. And there were periods when the Lebanese could not travel freely in their own country because the the organizational and the, the focus and intent of the Palestinians to prepare themselves for a long-term struggle uh, expressed itself as a, as a re restriction on the movement of Lebanese. Um, so there was back and forth. There was push back and forth and, and conflicts. And so the wars in, uh, what, 67, 72, um, the Yom Kippur War, all of those probably had uh, strategic roots in what was happening in the Lebanese camps. And uh, so by the mid-1970s, who knows who all of the players were in, in those conflicts. I mean, certainly Syria, the United States, and others were all a part of trying to shape uh, the nature and outcome, and Israel. I mean, Israel has had a, uh, a an amazingly rich relationship, unique relationship with the United States, so it's had assets and arms and other things that it could bring to bear uh, as a power uh, in an area um, that was less served by other forces. But um, so it, it had to do um, with the, the Lebanese um, finally just saying no to the ways in which their own stability was uh, unsettled by uh, Palestinians. I'm sure at that time um, there was discrimination against people of Palestine from other people. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point in that I, I said we should also uh, keep in mind the broader context because the, the Palestinian cause has had a pawn-like relationship to politics in the Middle East. And uh, when it served the interest of other powers, whether it's Egypt or Syria or Saudi Arabia, um, or now Iran, which is not an Arab country, but... Uh, you know, the Hezbollah um, efforts, then in some ways the Palestinians were stuck in a position where trying to uh, define and preserve and um, really create a, a democratic and, and legitimate uh, political environment found themselves used by other powers uh, to, to play an ideological or a war game. So we may all be at a loss to create a rational framework to understand what U.S. policy is today relative to 
Gaza and Israel and Palestine. It's, it is at the same time a period where most of our um, foreign aid has gone to Egypt and Israel. Uh, most of our political uh, warring, warmongering has been focused on Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, most of the rhetoric right now is uh, you know, focused more on uh, Iran than anywhere else. And we're watching without any clear understanding of what's happening uh, in Saudi Arabia, um, because that's where money and, and power is. So the Palestinians sort of get shunted to the side. You know, we talk about Gaza being the world's largest open-air prison. If you've watched the last couple of weeks for about the fourth or fifth consecutive year, uh, the world uh, humanitarian community has tried to open the little fishing ports of Gaza uh, to commerce, and the Israeli Navy has blockaded access to Gaza from the sea, and they seize these ships 40 and 50 miles out into the Mediterranean. They arrest people and they uh, beat them up and throw them in prison and then exile them and uh, seize the ships. So the fairly modest but passionate effort of people committed to peace and justice in the Middle East who are particularly concerned about the conditions in Gaza are rebuffed by the lack of any support from the U.S. government and by an active uh, opposition from Israel. In the year before Tahrir Square in Egypt, uh, the Arab Spring, there were a number of us that worked and finally brought 1,200 people from 40 different countries to uh, Cairo for a week. And our goal was in solidarity with Gaza to try to enter Gaza as a, an experience of, of learning and education. About a hundred out of the 1,200 were able to go into Gaza for a few days, but um, the following year, then the Arab Spring erupted, and I did get back a year after that, because the the initial, if we could call it success, of Tahrir Square was not long-lived. You know, so the uh, Assisi and, and others were quick to recapture control over a political situation in, in Egypt. The whole relationship amongst the, uh, the the players, I mean, Israel works fairly closely with uh, Egypt in terms of controlling access to Gaza in particular and uh, life in the West Bank and so on. So your gathering in Cairo, was that recent or? Uh, it was the year after the first Gaza, um, must have been about, uh, was it 2012? Yeah, so it was a few years ago now. Well, actually, you mentioned the idea of the conscious, conscientious objective. Could you define a little bit about that term? Yeah. So um, I was the executive director for seven years of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was created in 1914 uh, as the First World War began um, by a gathering of faith leaders, Quakers and Lutherans and Protestants and Catholics who uh, were in, I think it was in uh, Constance in Germany for a conference. And before the war started, before England and others got in, there was a very strong pacifist movement. It was opposition to the First World War as it was breaking out. And there was a commitment to supporting conscientious objectors. Most Western nations, how widespread globally the 
the right is, but most Western nations have provisions for people who object to war to do alternative service. Until the Vietnam War, that right was constrained by ones being brought up in what are called historic peace churches, Quakers, Brethren, Church of Christ, and so on. But the Fellowship of Reconciliation brought into that conversation and into that resistance people of other faiths as well. So during the First World War, the Second World War, the Vietnam War, there were always people who objected to the war and would not be conscripted, would not be drafted for service, and instead chose through their draft boards to apply for conscientious objection. Now, during the First World War, that was as likely as not to lead to an imprisonment, to being jailed, uh, to preserve those rights. During the Second World War, um, there was a little more of an apparatus so that people could either choose non-combatant roles within the military, working in the hospitals and prisoner of war camps and other places, or non-military roles, including things like conservation corps. There were, there were ways in which, you know, we talk about public service today as an alternative to the military. There were ways in which conscientious objectors could do alternative service outside the military. By the Vietnam War, there were a couple of choices that were made. Uh, people either went to seminary and got an exemption from being drafted by virtue of being in religious studies, uh, or like myself and others, we applied and pursued and were granted one way or another an exemption from military service as long as we had a specific form that was serving the national interest, but not through the military. And then the third pattern that uh, we uh, know best is the people who left the country particularly uh, a lot of American young people went to Canada. And there's still a large expatriate American population that lives up in, especially up in the um, northwestern Canadian provinces that left uh, during Vietnam rather than be drafted or served. But they went other places too. Growing up in the 60s and the Vietnam War, it's not only a time of racial tension and cultural tension, but also of immense humanitarian and social progress. So what was it like to be in that era? Yeah, um, you know, there's an enormous continuity. Um, one of the things that you know, I'd like for us to at least talk about a little bit is the use of mechanisms for addressing humanitarian rights include issues that are sometimes addressed through foreign aid, sometimes addressed through the United Nations and its agencies that uh, we know whether it's the inner city of Chicago or Afghanistan that you get a lot more traction, a lot more peace by addressing basic human needs, food, clothing, shelter, school, education, safety, and security than you do by bringing tanks and uh, AK-47s and visors and shields into communities to uh, control un unrest. Well, interestingly enough, the U.S. military uh, has a more sophisticated understanding of this balance between the use of humanitarian mechanisms versus the use of violence to create pacified environments in which there's justice. So over the last 10 or 15 years, the um, military 
has been seeking a closer relationship with humanitarian organizations and training people in skills for creating leadership capacity within communities to resolve basic human needs through means other than, than nonviolence. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is that from the 1870s, the YMCA was already sending people around the world to China and Africa and India, and they would move into and live in villages, and they would teach science and language and business and other skills. And they would work with leaders that became obvious who in the community really held positions of leadership to develop practices uh, that met people's needs and uh, and created a more just and, and fair environment. So the YMCA is an example, why, more so than a lot of other organizations, of a global effort to demonstrate that the basic issues of human justice are grounded in communal life and communal leadership. And so it's it's fascinating, disturbing in a lot of ways uh, in its own right, but fascinating to see the military, for example. I mean, it's like the area of climate change. Um, you know, the U.S. military in particular had an earlier and more profound understanding of the threats of climate change to, rest in, to unrest in the world than uh, the rest of government and uh, a lot of the, even the scientific world. I mean, scientists understood the science of climate change, but did not foresee what would happen as oceans rose and uh, droughts affected uh, larger. I mean, we can really point to Syria today uh, and its unrest as in no small measure due to a, a four-year drought in Syria that led people to be more and more demanding of the government meeting their needs for bread and and produce. Well, that's happening around the world, and we will see it continue to happen. And uh, it's ironic that uh, you know, the Pentagon is one of the places uh, where there's a clear understanding of these issues, more questions explored as to how you're going to answer them moving forward. You mentioned quite a bit about the YMCA and the history. Well, that was actually really interesting about the 1870s onward, how they actually sent people on. You mentioned earlier that a lot of people's perceptions under YMCA is like, a swimming center <laughs> a recreation right. in a community. So could you describe a little bit about your work in the YMCA and what YMCA means to you? Yeah. So um, I was involved as a high school student in a program called Youth in Government. Uh, so there's your first indication that in developing um, citizenship and social leadership in the YMCA in the 50s and 60s, one of the programs had to do with introducing people to the practices of citizenship, youth and government and high Y programs. When I went off to Lebanon, it was really my first introduction to how present the YMCA was in the rest of the world. The YMCA, like FOR, because it had the same kind of leadership, uh, was founded in England in 1844 uh, in response to the Industrial Revolution, uh, addressing the needs of young men as they moved from rural environments into uh, urban environments and the temptations and so on of that. But um, from the very beginning then, by 18, within a couple of years, there was a world alliance of YMCAs with headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland. And there were programs that sent volunteers around the world. And this was largely, um, it was significantly true of the American YMCA. 
but also of the English YMCA and the French and the German that were sending training and sending volunteers um, into places. So you and I have talked a little bit, uh, and I think you might have talked to uh, Marilyn Brunger. This particular community, mm -hmm. Pilgrim Place, had linkages to that work for decades now in terms of helping people whose status, because they were marginal in their native countries, to come to the United States was sometimes facilitated by relationships such as uh, those with, with Pilgrim Place. So there's a very concrete history of people moving globally out of these communities, these village communities where leadership was developed by the YMCA. So people like Harry Brunger, who started out in Ganzhou and China, left as the Maoist revolution was starting, moved to Hong Kong, created rooftop YMCAs and camping programs for uh, in, in Hong Kong, and then moved to Beirut, Lebanon for another dozen years and served uh, a variety of ways in which um, business leaders and community leaders were developed, YMCA leaders in the Middle East and Turkey and uh, Jordan and, uh, and Lebanon and, and Egypt, and then came back to the United States finally in the 70s and represented that work at the United Nations as a non-governmental organization. As one often does with one's mentors, it's a, a combination of sort of serendipity and intention. One of the last roles I had was to carry ECOSOC credentials, economic and social credentials, uh, at the United Nations on behalf of the Fellowship of Reconciliation as that institution examined the the major threats to global order and well-being, nuclear weapons, climate change, large, huge numbers of refugees. They said, I saw the other night something that said that if all of the refugees in the world right now lived in one country, it'd be the fifth largest nation in the world. And we uh, don't recognize that some of those conditions go back to the 40s, you know, whether it's the Palestinians or the Colombians or, or others, there are decades and decades of refugee status. And now we see the Rohingya and uh, climate-driven refugees. The YMCA was a, uh, a player in the creation of the United Nations, while government officials were supportive of this global uh, gathering as a mechanism for addressing world problems and world peace. There was also a, a public information need that the YMCA, the YWCA, the Red Cross, and others played in terms of their memberships and their volunteers about why it was important to create um, the United Nations. And so there was, a, there was a collaboration there between these large humanitarian, you know, globally distributed organizations, not-for-profit organizations, you know, and the governments to, to, to create that entity of uh, the United Nations. You know, to go, to go back for a second, I've mentioned it a couple of times or alluded to the fact that the Fellowship of Reconciliation, founded in 1915 in the United States, was the result of John R. Mott, global ambassador without portfolio to evangelism, would bring emerging creative imaginative solutions to a conference he held in Long Island City in New York and introduced these leaders to this conference weekend. It was there in 1915 that the Fellowship of Reconciliation was created by people attending a conference of the founders of the Fellowship of Reconciliation in Europe. 
FOR then went on through the first two world wars to address principally the right to conscientious objection. But at the same time, in 1917, leadership from the Fellowship of Reconciliation went to Nicaragua to try to negotiate a peace in a conflict involving the Sandinista and the Nicaraguan government. By the 1940s and 50s, the Fellowship of Reconciliation was deeply involved in making sure that the civil rights movement was a nonviolent movement. You know, we can all point to statements that uh, Martin Luther King and others made that this was not, it was a moral issue, a moral movement, a moral battle. It was not going to be resolved with the use of violence or arm. And so Bayard Rustin and Glenn Smiley, staff of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, who'd been involved in uh, testing some of the early laws on the right to interstate transportation without reference to race, you know, the notion that people shouldn't have to sit in the back of the bus, was law in the United States long before it was contested at the municipal level in Montgomery, Alabama, because of U.S. Supreme Court decisions. But it was FOR who actually went out, bought bus tickets, traveled through the South, you know, and sat as interracial groups wherever they wanted on the bus, and so on, testing these, these propositions. For four years, the Fellowship of Reconciliation and other parts of Ferguson, Missouri, as a community, have been exploring how do you re address racial discrimination and imbalance and, and injustice uh, in an environment like Ferguson. And of course, now we see every day there's another community that falls into to that category. So the Fellowship of Reconciliation is again involved in uh, working towards achieving racial justice and rights in this country and, and around the world. And, you know, you've got uh, the, the underlying question here, of what does it mean to be human? Obviously, as a species, we internalize or manifest various um, uh, interests. There are people whose uh, upbringing and whose orientation makes them more prone uh, to self-interest, to greed, to power, and it's in their interest for others not to be educated mm. about the power of nonviolence. So Gandhi, you know, here's an interesting thing that you can go back and reconstruct. But Gandhi is one of the most critical exemplars of the use of nonviolence to create change in the world. So in independent India, the collapse of the British rule of India has to do with enormous sacrifices by Gandhi and the, and his nonviolence. Well, Gandhi first began to think about nonviolence by reading Tolstoy, a Russian philosopher, and Henry David Thoreau, an American transcendentalist mm -hmm. in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 1830s, 40s, 50s, and Gandhi is in the 1930s, 40s. So there is a global context, there's a conversation, there's an experience of, of becoming human, of shaping community around values that respect the other and the build. We tend, of course, uh, to be a Christocentric nation, and so we are less inclined to allow our learning 
to bring into the conversation, you know, a Hindu or a Muslim uh, or a Jewish or a non-Christian perspective. But the deepest conversations were always deeply multicultural, multi-faith. And there are ways in which, by confining the study of nonviolence to a particular faith perspective, you lose the richness, you lose the additional particular insights that, uh, you know, Gandhi would, for example, would bring. Now, you know, Gandhi went off and studied law in England. He was a vegetarian. He practiced law in South Africa, where as an Indian, his color was more confused ideologically than it would have been in India or maybe in this country. I mean, I, I still you wrestle with what does it mean to be a person of color in America? I certainly know what it means to be white and privileged, but, you know, all of those other uh, fine tunings. And we know that when an African-American movement, a black power movement, comes to address the broader social and political implications of justice and peace, it brings a capacity because of the history of slavery and other things to view that through a lens that's not privileged in the same way to enrich our understanding of what it means to be privileged, first of all, and then to be engaged collectively in the creation of, in becoming human. I mean, I, I think you can argue that we're only becoming human. And it may be a, uh, an idealization to be human. You know, we're, we're never quite there. Uh, we're always uh, striving to be human. But I'm increasingly struck. And again, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, another aspect of its structure is it houses what are called peace fellowships. So there's a Muslim Peace Fellowship, a Jewish Peace Fellowship, a Buddhist Peace Fellowship, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist. There are 24 different faith orientations in which people committed to pacifism, committed to nonviolence. So it doesn't, you know, you won't necessarily find Islam broadly defined as being unreservedly committed to nonviolence or Judaism, or Hinduism, or Buddhism. But within each of those communities, you will find significant numbers of people who from the same faith uh, context draw support for nonviolence and for that particular path to becoming human, one in which we respect the other. And I love the word becoming. Mm -hmm. It's a journey, a life's work, the idea of becoming. It's this transformation of oneself. What would you, I'm mean, going more on the idea of human or becoming human, what would you define human values to be? Yeah, well, artem solus, it's an art, not a science. So I, I think that it's a project of the heart more than of the intellect. And it's a project of imagination and creativity more than of rules and laws and, and structures. I think that becoming human and human values, you know, at its root is a reverence for the gifts of creation that enrich our lives. I think we have become co-opted, deceived, uh, and it's a fascinating argument even within the becoming human conversation of the exceptionalism 
of the human species, because one can make a case that we find ourselves in the situation we're in because of the notion of exceptionalism, that as human beings, we have a right to dominion, to domination, that no other species or no other aspect of creation has. We will pay a dear, dear price for exceptionalism. And while I value intellectually having a conversation about where the human species stands relative to responsibility for creation, I think that we have actually, as I say, we've already paid and we will yet pay an enormous price failing to revere, to have reverence for creation as a, a context in which we continue to live and grow. I'm basically an optimist, but I also believe that in a sense it's too late, that, that it's magical thinking, not because the science wouldn't allow one to address in creative and imaginative ways climate change, but because the species embedded in the concept of human exceptionalism won't change fast enough, won't move far enough. We're not willing to give up what it is that we have gotten by practicing exceptionalism. And so, you know, the, the oceans will rise and uh, vast areas of uh, civilization will be challenged to expend resources beyond their capacity on trying to protect themselves uh, from those forces. And uh, in the end, I mean, think about it. The millions of people that are moving across the earth, you know, moving from Africa to Europe and from Asia into other places across South America. You know, with the deepest respect for refugee communities, we're riding on the backs of refugee communities that are doing the only thing they can do in the face of climate change and all of the political violence and unrest that grows out of it. Going on the idea of human exceptionalism and you mentioned earlier greed, what do you think is the root or the main cause of human suffering or this human evil, per se? It's a challenging question. I think part of it is uh, the ways in which we've come to define pleasure. There are peoples in the world who survive on, you know, little more than a cup of rice and a glass of something to drink. I can't imagine my life without a lunch with a fancy salad bar and, you know, a a vegetarian entree and so on. You know, one of the pleasures is eating. So I throw away 40% or 50% of the food that I buy or goes onto my plate for the pleasure mm. of eating this little bit. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of what should give us pleasure. Just having enough should be su a sufficient definition of pleasure. Status sort of follows from that. So we measure our access to pleasure by someone else's perceived access to pleasure. And we, we give that a status and we compare it. So another part is rather than seeing what we have in common and what makes us equal and respectful, we separate ourselves from the other by defining the pleasure that that person has. And then if you're in that status, you know, so pleasure then extends itself beyond consumption of material goods to power, nobody telling you what you're going to do or can do, 
And then you get into situations where, you know, you, you think of the people who aren't going to let the government or somebody else tell them what to do. It's sort of the last stand against that little bit of pleasure that defines uh, who people are. I think, I think pleasure has misapprehension of what pleasure means is one source of suffering. And I don't understand Buddhism well, but I think Buddhists, for example, have a deeper understanding that we can be co-opted by pleasure and accumulation and access and so on. And that becomes a source of suffering. If we let go, we don't need, then we don't suffer. You know, so I have three daughters and I have five grandchildren. In some ways, you know, I let my children go when they went off to college, when they became adults. But I share their children as a grandparent and a concern for their future and well-being. And I have to admit that I'm a bit protective about what their capacity for reverence for creation is and what kind of a future then they are insured. If they don't develop a capacity of reverence for creation, if they see people all around them, you know, tossing litter out the windows and throwing away half of what it is they buy to eat, then they're not going to contribute to a sustainable uh, future. That would be tragic. But is there something within the species that you want your grandchildren, your offspring, your genetic issue to be assured of livelihood and sustainability. Suffering is also obviously um, the result of people exercising power, drones and bombs and uh, limited foreign aid and so on. So, I mean, we make other people suffer, probably suffer much ourselves as a result of that. Kind of going in contrast to that question, do you think, I feel like you already answered this in some sense, but do you feel that world peace can be achieved? Or <laughs> the idealized unity amongst all communities? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny that the, uh, what we call post-apocalyptic, uh, the literature and stories, they're, they're always pretty grim. Mm -hmm. These visions of a, a future after. Um, sadly, but <laughs> ironically, you know, the, the, the possibilities of world peace it may have to get worse before it gets better. Um, you know, it's, again, it's, some would call that cynicism, maybe. In fact, that's one possible path to world peace, is that you have a conflict that is so precipitously disastrous that people have no choice but to pursue new ways of uh, convening as communities. There's a debate that goes on about whether you know, civilization as we know it is a relatively recent phenomena within the evolution of the species, and that for a much longer period of, of history, we were tribal in our way of social organizing. There are those who argue that uh, while the world was blessed with abundance, uh, when it was easy to find food and shelter and to move relative to the climate and so on. The tribal way of organizing was an efficient way of taking advantage of abundance and so on. And it was only as scarcity began to impact the human species um, 
Karen Armstrong makes this, this argument, as the population of the world expanded, and now as climate change uh, destroys before it could ever be used, some of that abundance, then the tribal uh, way of organizing is no longer the most efficient way because it puts groups in competition with one another. But one can foresee that post-apocalyptically, that following a catastrophe, the relationship between the number of beings and the, and the capacity, the carrying capacity, the earth might be in balance again, and maybe there is a peaceful outcome there. And there are lots of grim reapers and stories <laughs> that would suggest otherwise. I think, I mean, I, I, the other is idealistic, but um, pacifists, especially of the uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation's character, uh, are not respecters of, uh, of nations and nation states. That we would argue that nations and nation states are a cause of more suffering and more unrest. So that a global world order that was constructed around principles of respect and reverence. So you could see a United Nations that evolved to a point where there was a consensus, a global consensus. Well, we're only going to survive if we adopt these particular principles and practices, could lead to world peace. But right now, obviously, the balance would be decidedly distorted towards uh, those who are patriotic and nationalist and don't believe that they have anything in common with the Chinese or the Koreans or the Iranians or others. Kind of going on the idea of today um, and becoming, where do you think the world or our communities right now are becoming towards? Well, um, I guess I do believe the pattern of generativity. So, you know, when I was your age, I was entering an environment that quickly took me out into the world, took me to the Middle East, got me involved in, in politics and, and other things. And then I spent a career, amongst other things, in which I moved into positions where I was responsible for the work and practices of large numbers of people. I mean, sometimes I had two or three hundred employees. And so my focus was on creating an environment in which I brought people together that shared values in a way that they supported one another in their work. And I advised, I am told by people who worked for me during those years, that that, uh, that particular view of the way a community comes together to, uh, to do its work made a difference in their lives. So now, at 71 years of age, I'm more interested in looking at what you're doing than suggesting that I have any more answers. I mean, I have modeled, uh, I have experimented, created environments and communities in which practices could be tested, and they people found them rewarding, uh, helped them, them grow. And as I look around, you know, there's a group of young people who are suing the government for failing to protect the environment. In their case, is on the way to the Supreme Court. They've learned to use the rule of law to test the ways in which corporate and uh, governmental practices manifest themselves. Um, all across the country, there are young people who are being trained in the principles and practices of nonviolence and are using that learning as they internalize it to address problems in their own community. I'm much interested in uh, watching and supporting and encouraging that I have a, a role anymore 
in that. So I, you know, we, about six years ago, we created an organization called Interfaith Moral Action mm-hmm. on Climate. And it's about 400 loosely related congregations and organizations that understand the climate issue to be a moral question. We decided that we were going to use the occasion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, January 19th, each year to lift up what King called the urgency of now and to demonstrate somewhere. So for a couple of years, we demonstrated in front of the White House, and one year we were arrested. The the T-shirt walk for your grandchildren, that was Mm -hmm. a specific effort to bring together, I think there were 25 or 30 of us, to walk from Camp David to Washington, D.C., to walk 100 miles as a part of the long, hot summer, really just to say, you know, you're right. You don't give up your responsibility or your interest in, in these kinds of things. But by the time we got to Washington, of course, it was thousands of young people who had been part of this long, hot summer, 350.org, coming together, and we sort of stood over at the side <laughs> and watched. Um, it's fascinating because I, as I moved in here, I arrived to a blossoming of a cancer problem. And uh, so I undergo chemotherapy every other week and I can't march anymore. I can't walk more than a few blocks and so on. It really does uh, unsettle me that I can't be with my peers in these environments and supporting other people. But again, I'm glad they've developed the skills and the practices uh, to pursue those paths at the same time. Well, I guess you touched on this already. In your life, what is a life worth living? Yeah, I um, do have more occasion just to sort of sit and reflect or to visit with old friends and listen. The things that I look back on with the greatest pleasure is when I saw a capacity in someone and uh, did what I could and challenged them to develop that capacity, to live to their fullest capacity. I remember, for example, visiting a campus YMCA when I was the director of the campus Y at the University of Illinois in Minneapolis. In their building, they had an exhibition by a woman who was using art therapy to deal with the trauma of her life. She grew up as an abused child in a home, and um, it was a powerful exhibit. I went out and I rented a van, talked her into packing it up and taking it back to the University of Illinois. And again, on that campus, which was a large campus, lots of people came back, came through that facility and saw that. I feel really good about those kinds of things. Um, I call myself two things. I call myself a poet doing the work of peacemaking. And so I, I try to capture a lot of the art of becoming human in poetry. But I also call myself a bricolure. Uh, bricolure is a, um, an archetype uh, that was introduced by Claude Lévi-Strauss, a, a French anthropologist. And a bricolure is someone who br- brings people and things together that normally wouldn't be seen as related to one another. It's like the collage artist who makes a picture out of lots of different things. So a bricolure is someone who um, brings people into relationship with one another because they have complementary skills, strengths, affections, and so on. So for me, a life well lived is the life of the bricolure. 
of the person who leverages, multiplies, enhances the capacities of a variety of people by uh, bringing them together in um, new ways. I mean, I, I said that you know there were periods of time when I had staff of 150, 200 people. There's no way that you can manage what they do. The only thing you can do is look for the best people you can find and create a common understanding of what needs to be done and then let them do it. So that that's also the, the sign. Now, maybe it's laziness, but I think it's a, a good practice. Of, uh, do you have any advice for someone of my generation? I can't imagine that your life won't be a life of continuing to expand. My pen name as a poet is Sinjab, which is Arabic for squirrel. And I admire the squirrel because of its apparent curiosity. It just runs around and it has lots of energy. My advice is just to follow the squirrel, follow the curiosity, see where it takes you. You know, I had college and university for like 12 years. <laughs> I started undergraduate work in 1965 and I got my PhD in 1981 or 82. And then I went off, went off and worked for the YMCA. <laughs> so I a PhD in sociology from Columbia University. And this is a, a great community. We're just learning about it. But you know, you've got 300 people here, any one of them who could spend a week teaching something they had learned and to be able to take advantage of that. I think it's just, just wonderful. With every episode, I end up with a question. Well, you already answered it. What does it mean to be human? But do you have any last thoughts or perspectives on what it means to be human? Well, it, it's uh, sort of like, who is God? Nobody knows who God is. <laughs> who knows? Um, and in that sense, who knows what it is to be human? I think thought is that, you know, it is the becoming notion that you just keep exploring uh, and learning. I think to be responsible, and this is what my poetry does, about capturing what it is that you've learned today about being human is important. Because we know that it's like a dream. You know, you can wake up in the morning and know you had an interesting dream, but not remember what it is. Well, if you don't make a point of capturing those particular moments when you know defines in some way what it means to be human then that's lost and however you decide to do that whether it's through painting or art or essays or whatever i do it through poetry and i i can't advise someone else that that's the right path to do it but i think the practice of trying to capture so that it isn't lost so now you know i've got 1500 2000 poems i can go back ask myself what was I thinking <laughs> when I wrote that poem. But uh, every once in a while I'll say, ah, uh -huh, yeah, that's right. This is Mark C. Johnson, an activist, writer, and humanitarian. The notion of becoming captures the beauty of our journeys, one that illustrates our vulnerabilities and strengths as hallmarks of the human experience. Our lives are in continuous movement, in constant transformation from one life to the next. Becoming is what makes us human.